You're listening to On Human Rights, where we talk to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. We have a special episode for you today. Lund University and the Raoul Wallenberg Institute has just launched a new research hub for human rights. It's one of Europe's biggest research environments for human rights-related issues. And at the launch of that hub, Anne Orford delivered the keynote speech. We're going to play it here in its entirety. Anne Orford is the visiting chair of human rights and humanitarian law at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute. She's also Redmond Barry Distinguished Professor and Michael D. Kirby Chair of International Law at Melbourne Law School. Enjoy. Well, many thanks, uh, Thomas, for that kind introduction and to uh, all the organisers for the invitation uh, to be with you. I'm really delighted to be present at this launch of the Lund Human Rights Research Hub. Over the course of a number of visits to this university, uh, for more than a decade, I realise, I've been privileged to work with human rights researchers in the law faculty, uh, in the human rights studies program in the history department, and now in the Raoul Wallenberg Institute. And the hub brings together these institutions, along with, as you'll see from your program, 12 other departments and institutes at Lund University. Clearly, Lund is a leading centre for innovative research in human rights, and it's wonderful to see this strength uh, recognised today through the creation of this multidisciplinary hub designed to enable conversations and collaborations across disciplines. So my presentation today is on the topic, as you've heard, of critical thinking and human rights. So why this topic? Well, Lund University, like many other universities in Sweden and elsewhere, makes clear that critical thinking and freedom of mind are the cornerstones of academic life at the university. And I realised in preparing for today that I could have spent the whole of the time allocated to this talk trying to define critical thinking uh, and freedom of mind. So instead, I'll just take my working definitions from Lund University's document on study opportunities at Lund University, education, research and innovation since 1666, which sounds very impressive to an Australian. Uh, so in the section on academic life, the document says, critical thinking and freedom of mind are cornerstones of academic life at Lund University. Critical thinking refers to the ability to assess information and form independent and well-informed opinions, to scrutinise and question beliefs, to revise opinions in the light of new knowledge, to give and receive criticism, and to engage in discussion and learn from others. And freedom of mind, it says, refers to the ability to think outside the box, to liberate oneself from conventional wisdoms, to value the authenticity of ideas and experiences, and to appreciate and seek fresh perspectives on old ideas. So I'm interested in asking what it means to study human rights as part of an institutional culture committed to these principles of critical thinking and freedom of mind. How does this academic style of engaging with human rights differ from that of an activist or official approach to rights? What challenges does that pose? 
and what opportunities might it open up? So the first answer might be simply that human rights equal critical thinking and freedom of mind, that human rights are the foundation of critique and freedom, and that without a commitment to human rights, we won't have the capacity to engage in public acts of critique or opposition. And this is an important point to stress, particularly in the current climate, where we're seeing a renewed challenge to these political freedoms, with governments jailing journalists, closing down opposition newspapers, summarily firing academics and limiting their freedom of movement, and expelling foreign NGOs. And certainly both historically and today, rights have been used as a means of challenging that kind of repressive state power. So in Europe and in the American colonies of the late uh, 18th century, freedom of thought and the press were championed as liberal responses to monarchical or authoritarian forms of rule and as a means of liberating individuals from the abuses of centralised power. And as you'll all know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948 famously incorporated these ideas into its text, providing in Article 18 that everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion, and in Article 19 that everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. And in his outstanding doctoral thesis, written under the supervision of Leonor Haldanius in history, Linda Linkvist has shown both how central Article 18 on freedom of thought, conscience and religion was to the drafters of the Universal Declaration, but also how uncertain its meaning and how contested its formulation. So was this a right directed inward? to the freedom of thought and conscience of the individual? Was it a right directed to the outward practice or manifestation of these freedoms? Was it a collective right to establish and maintain institutions such as religious schools or charitable organisations, or today we might ask NGOs? Or was it directed to the protection of religious minorities as a group? And was this freedom of thought and conscience to be exercised towards a particular telos or end, a freedom that could properly be recognised only in the act of realising a greater purpose for human existence, in the Marxist formulation perhaps, to realising uh, communism? So there's many ways in which we could formulate that same question about the relation between critical thought and human destiny. So academic freedom has also been recognised as part of the right to education. Uh, Article 13 of ISESCA uh, was interpreted by the Committee on uh, Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, in fact, to include academic freedom, though it's nowhere mentioned as part of the right to education. And in that general comment 13, the committee recognised that the right to education can only be enjoyed if accompanied by the academic freedom of staff and students. So we can think of academic freedom as something belonging to an individual, the individual right to a member of the academic community to freedom of expression and thought, but also as a collective right, as Balakrishnan Rajagopal has put it, that can only be discharged through complex relationships between students, faculty, institutions, the government and society, a means to realising an end of 
important societal goals, that same sense of something unfolding. The centrality of academic freedom to democratic society was also recently highlighted by the uh, Utrecht Declaration of the Association of Human Rights Institutes, of which the Raoul Wallenberg Institute is a part. And in September 2016, they made a statement deploring the actions and threats of an increasing number of states to restrain and even foreclose academic freedom in the name of security, public order, counter-terrorism, counter-crime or counter-extremism through a variety of measures including disciplinary actions, dismissals, criminal prosecutions, physical violence, travel restrictions and widespread intimidation. Brackets, you know who you are, I think, was the subtext of that. So the declaration stressed that the intimidation and repression of scholars, teachers and students violates their individual freedoms, but also that such practices generate a climate of fear in which any form of creative and critical thinking is being suffocated at great cost for current and future generations and for society as a whole. But alongside this commitment to human rights as the foundation of critical thinking and freedom of mind, we often find an accompanying implication that rights themselves are beyond critique and question. And in a sense, this is bound up with the language in which human rights are presented and promoted. So if we think about the 1789 French Declaration of the Rights of Man, rights are described as natural, natural inalienable and sacred. The UDHR of 1948 begins by declaring in the preamble that recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice and peace in the world. And the opening article of that declaration states that all human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed by nature with reason and conscience and should act toward one another in a spirit of brotherhood. And the preamble of the two covenants of 1966 open with the words, recognition of the inherent dignity and the equal and inalienable right of all members of the human family is, again, the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace. Or as the 2005 World Summit put it, the universal nature of human rights and freedoms is beyond question. So these ideas of nature, reason, and conscience, the claim that rights are inalienable, universal, and beyond question, seems to take human rights outside the world of modern politics and gesture towards something immutable, and beyond history or critique. Well, if we take that view, then the role of academics is to document human rights, organize and systematize them, communicate their uncontested meaning to those being trained, and promote their implementation. But the relation between theory and practice here is programmatic rather than critical. Rights are precarious, their status is vulnerable, and critique would only weaken their purchase in an already hostile world. So you can probably guess that that's not where I'm heading. So I'm going to suggest that, uh, in fact, it's important to think critically also about human rights. And indeed, scholars have subjected foundational questions about the human and rights to critical reflection over many decades. And many of those scholars are in this hall. 
And this, um, in large part, I think, is a consequence of the fact that since the middle of the 20th century, rights have moved from being a revolutionary ideal to being a core part of the operation of international politics and international law. So there's now, as we know, an enormous body of conventions, protocols, and more aspirational documents embodying human rights as part of international law. A complex, and as with all law, adversarial practice has grown up around those texts, aimed at promoting, defending, interpreting, and enforcing human rights. Human rights courts and institutions exist at the national, regional, regional and international levels. And to say that something is a human right today is to say that its protection depends not only on national legal systems, but also on international law. And to say that transnational action by international agencies, by NGOs, and even by other states is legitimate for protecting such rights. Human rights have also become part of a practice of global governance. So this is in part through the incorporation of human rights norms into the routine operations of governments and even cities, but more importantly through the ways in which international institutions, NGOs and agencies themselves are involved in forms of governance. With the end of the Cold War, the human rights and humanitarian movements benefited from a great burst of energy, self-confidence, and in some cases, sponsorship. And human rights advocacy is now a professional practice as well as a revolutionary movement. So what does it mean then if human rights is now both a language used to challenge power but also a language of power? used to critique government decisions, but also taken up to justify them, used to critique state violence, but also to justify state violence, for example, as humanitarian intervention, and so on. Of course, in many ways, this is the realisation of the ambition of those seeking to mainstream rights and see them in, embedded in state practice. So I should be clear, I don't think power is a bad thing. And nor do I think that seeing your goals realised is a bad thing. But what does it mean for those of us committed to critical thinking and freedom of mind? How should we think about rights now that they are in part the language of governance, of law, of bureaucracy and of criminal prosecutors, increasingly part of the conduct of government and the operation of law? So this opens up the question of critical thinking directed at human rights, directed at asking what work human rights claims are doing in particular situations, whose interests they serve in particular times and places, what models of rights are privileged and which ones are discarded, what happens to rights when they become part of international law or when they're used to justify the use of force and so on. And there has been a body of work that's developed uh, critically thinking about human rights as part of a practice of governance, uh, both in law schools, in political uh, science departments and in history departments. So many critical claims have been made about human rights in that work, but here I just want to sketch seven points that I think are worthy uh, of attention as a guide to critical thinking about rights. 
So the first then is how do we think about holding those who govern or exercise power in the name of rights to account? And I think the most dramatic example here to which many people return is the use of military force in the name of humanitarian intervention or occupation. And with the end of the Cold War, uh, we saw the concept of security and thus the ends to which the conflict machinery of the UN is put expanded to include humanitarian aims and protection of human rights. Mandates granted to UN peacekeeping forces during the 90s and beyond expanded to include monitoring human rights and rebuilding the capacity of the state. And peacekeeping became established as a core technique of international rules. So by the end of um, the last decade, the UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations could claim that it led the world's second largest deployed military force after the US. So the unease about holding the international community to account for the harm it inflicts in the name of protecting human rights through force um, is well illustrated by a series of decisions of the European Court of Human Rights in the joint cases of Bayrami and France and Saramati in France, Germany and Norway. Many of you would know these cases decided in 2007 where the Grand Chamber of the Court declared it inadmissible to hear claims brought against European states for human rights abuses conducted by... Um, the K4, the International Security Force, created uh, under the auspices of UN Security Council Resolution 1244. So you might remember that in those cases, uh, the first involved two children uh, who were um, playing uh, in uh, the hills around Kosovo, came across some undetonated cluster bombs that had been dropped by NATO. One of the boys was killed and the other seriously injured. So that claim was brought by their father on their behalf, uh, alleging violations of Article 2 of the ECHR on right to life, uh, caused by the failure of French K4 troops to mark or defuse undetonated bombs, which they knew were uh, in those spots. And in the Saramati case, the case uh, related to detention by K4 of uh, uh, Rusdi Saramati. So what's interesting uh, is not um, so much the fact that the court uh, found these cases were inadmissible, but more the way it explained that decision. And it said that it was not competent to review the acts of those um, states because they were carried out uh, as part of a mission that was fundamental to the UN's goal of securing peace and security. So to subject these actions to scrutiny by a human rights court, the court said, would interfere with the fulfilment of the UN's key missions. These actions were directly attributable to an organisation of universal jurisdiction. And that was despite the fact that the K-4 troops were directly answerable to their national commanders, fell exclusively within the jurisdiction of their states. Those states decided on their immunities. The home states retained jurisdiction in disciplinary, civil and criminal matters. The personnel were immune from arrest and detention other than by their state. The rules of engagement were national. The deployment decisions were national. And the financing of the troops was national. 
So as human rights scholars said at the time, the decision sent a clear message to states that they could do whatever they wish and escape human rights scrutiny so long as they shielded themselves by the imprimatur of an international organisation who said they were acting to uh, protect human rights. More recently, the former Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon responded to critics of the implementation of the responsibility to protect concept in the Libyan intervention by saying that we should not let the right be the enemy of the good. But even the good need to be held to account for their conduct. After all, history reminds us that the appeal to rights in the French Revolution served to undermine the legitimacy of the state through appeals to a higher law, but of course that led to the terror. So the work of Matilda Arvidsson, Marcus Gunnerflow, Olof Beckman, Gregor Noll, and Armin Passer uh, in the law school and the history departments here, I think all in different ways seek to understand these complex entanglements of the use of force with appeals to human rights and humanitarianism. Second, human rights claims, like any form of normative language, operate as political tools in specific contexts. And that's particularly the case once they're embodied in law. So once rights are legalised, they become part of a field and an institutional culture that is characterised by its adversarial nature. So in that system, the claim to rights becomes part of a struggle, where to be able to cast your position in terms of rights makes it appear non-negotiable. In order to evaluate what rights are doing, once they become legalised, we need to be attuned to this adversarial process and to the fact that any interpretation of a right can be taken up and used in a situation in which someone will win and someone will lose. Third, the meaning of legal concepts is not simply the product of a single act or creation at a particular moment, but it's also produced through the process of handing on concepts from one actor to the next. So legal concepts are sustained through being passed from legal hand to legal hand, analysed by scholars in journal articles, invoked in arguments before courts and tribunals, cited by judges, appealed to by politicians and diplomats, and taught in classrooms. Through those routines and rituals of legal life involving transmission and testing of interpretations, these texts gain a heightened reality and purpose. And as Lena Sturfelt noted today, rights are also renegotiated on the ground. So while we might want to claim that we know the precise and stable meaning of a text because of a particular interpretation or a moment at which it was drafted, in fact, what's more emblematic of knowledge production in relation to concepts such as human rights is this practice of repetition. So in thinking about human rights as legal concepts, it's essential, therefore, to think about how they come to be enshrined and developed in particular texts or judgments, but also how practices and techniques continue to give such concepts new authority and meaning. And here I think the work of Thomas Gamletoff Hansen on practices of legality is pertinent. Fourth, rights are not 
just negative but also positive. So while rights are used to denounce certain institutionalised forms of violence and abuse, they also carry with them a vision of what should replace those violent or abusive institutions. Rights claims are often proxies then for deeper struggles. And these visions of the good to which rights projects aim are often conflicting or contested, a point made by Lana Haldanius in her work on liberty and Linda Linkfist in the project I just mentioned on the reinvention of real religious liberty in the UDHR. So again, we need to be attentive as critical thinkers to the nature of those deeper struggles and to the broader projects that rights claims seek to realise. So where in the 19th century liberal rights advocates used rights arguments to challenge feudalism or mercantilism or the fiscal military state or monarchical rule, the 20th century saw other states uh, challenged through uh, rights, language, totalitarian states, communist states, but even social states became the targets of human rights projects in the name of promoting and defending freedom and liberty. Fifth, human rights is a powerful language and one that works to shine a light on particular problems. Given its absolute, absolutist claims, once rights language is invoked, it trumps, in the language of Ronald Dworkin, or marginalises or displaces other values or interests that are not translatable into rights. And we could think here about, for instance, the no peace without justice debates playing out again in the context of the Colombian um, peace process where arguments about human rights are used to trump uh, attempts to reach peace agreements where those peace agreements are felt not properly to recognise rights issues. Sixth, rights are too often the vocabulary of the centre against the periphery. So we know the reasons for this as good realists. We know why it is that the responsibility to protect won't ever be used against a member of the permanent five. We know why it is that it's almost always African states that are brought before the International Criminal Court. We know why it is that it's often powerful actors who bring human rights cases under national discrimination laws rather than more marginalised groups and so on. Yet the mechanics of this need to be the subject of sustained attention and study and hear the work of Leila Brandstrom in the law school uh, on a discrimination law is enlightening, but so also is the institutional work being done by Morton Sherem's reorientation of the Vollenberg Institute from a Lund-centred uh, institute to one organised around a matrix and a network uh, uh, structure. And if you want to get a picture of that, Morton will explain it to you later. Um, finally, critical thinkers have argued that as human rights become part of the routine practice and language of government, they begin to be balanced, strategized about and deployed in much the same way as other forms of everyday political language. Yet a political or legal culture that officially claims that rights are inalienable, inalienable or foundational and yet in practice 
constantly finds that actually they're not quite that inalienable after all, becomes a culture of dissolution and bad faith. A gap emerges between the absolutist language of idealism and moral righteousness and the practice of strategic calculation. Appeals to human rights begin to be perceived as a form of politics by other means and become less compelling as a result. So just as the perceived involvement of the United Nations in partisan military battles leads to the degree of the blue helmet as a symbol of neutrality, so too does the use of rights language in political debate begin to seem like just one more screen misrepresenting the true nature of political objectives or serving interests other than it claims to serve. So for all those reasons, I think, it's important to continue subjecting human rights concepts, practices and institutions to critical thinking. But I also want to distinguish this kind of critical thinking I'm um, interested in from a more knee-jerk criticism or cynicism. So a relentlessly and uh, reactively cynical response to human rights is, I think, as much of a problem uh, both analytically and politically as not thinking critically at all. So analytically, dogmatic criticism of human rights can be just as unthinking as dogmatic promotion of human rights. To reflect upon the work that human rights does as an intervention in politics is not the same thing as saying that human rights is always a problem in all forms, in all times, in all places. And similarly, a reactive cynicism about all interventions in the name of human rights seems unhelpful politically. We're living, as Jonas Hefström remarked in opening, in a post-truth political environment in which all forms of authority, knowledge and expert reason are subject to criticism uh, and ridicule. So the relentlessly cynical operation of that kind of criticism offers little purchase on a populist political and legal culture that depends upon that cynicism for its consolidation and expansion. And I had something of this reaction when I saw um, in the first week after the Trump election that Samuel Moyne, uh, who's a very well-known um, critical historian of human rights, posted a piece on open democracy that was widely tweeted, entitled, Trump and the Limits of Human Rights. And he closed that piece by saying, to the man with a hammer, it is said, everything looks like a nail. But now Trump is on the brink of power, and to hammer away at human rights is to neglect the desperate need for other tools. So while it's a good point to say that to a man with a hammer, or a woman with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, that's not to say that there are never nails that need to be hammered. So the, concepts of right, the concept of rights offers a way of articulating wrongs suffered at the hands of collectives. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on the wrong and the collective. But in the context of a president-elect who is threatening to crack down on immigrants and dissent and to promote a violent white nationalism, appeals to rights might well be a useful tool in some situations. But so might appeals to contract law or tort law or tax law. It all depends on the specific problem that arises. So I think a knee-jerk cynicism is equally analytically unhelpful. So to conclude, and with that caveat, can we bring the worlds of human rights and of critical inquiry together in the university, particularly in this kind of interdisciplinary context? 
Well, the kind of humanistic reflection about the history and meaning of human rights that I've been describing is vital to enable a living conception of human rights. Indeed, the human rights community today is, I think, open to serious, critical reflection and academic engagement. In my experience, teaching students who have been human rights professionals or engaged in human rights work, they are extremely sophisticated and aware of the complicated issues of power, knowledge and expertise that arise in their work in other countries. They have a keen sense of the limits of their routines, languages and practices and are deeply interested to study what has worked, what has gone awry, and illuminate what can still be achieved. So as Geoffrey Harpham has put it, it's the enduring task of reflection to elaborate difficulties, especially in cases where we're being asked to accept something as given, sacred, or otherwise beyond dispute or inquiry. This is particularly the case for disciplines like law that emphasise interpretation, judgement or evaluation. So we study texts, historical artefacts, concepts, arguments in search of lost meanings, hidden possibilities, ways of understanding how the real has been made real and how it might be transformed. And these tasks are essential if we're to understand and to grasp what human rights means in particular times and places. So while I've suggested that it's vital to think critically about human rights, that does not mean abandoning the concept of human rights. Rather, both the terms in my title, critical thinking and human rights, ask us to continue to work through and with contradiction and tension to try and realise freedom in the world. And I'm confident that the Lund Human Rights Hub will play a significant role in that process of transformation. Thanks. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Loon, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll be back soon with more talking to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law.